Alrighty, tonight we're going to spend our time looking at the first six verses of chapter 3. I don't think we'll get farther than that. Hopefully we'll be able to get through all that, but I don't think we'll get farther than that. Um, tonight we're going to be looking at the church at Sardis. In fact, verse 1 begins, and to the angel of the church in Sardis. And let me give you a little background about uh, Sardis, because it's important we understand the city. First of all, as far as the church is concerned, we don't know anything about how the church was established or how it came about. We just know that there was a church there, and we'll talk more about that church in just a little bit. But we do have some historical references about Sardis, even though it no longer exists as a city any longer. It's just a heap of ruins, and there's not anybody that even really lives in that area except for some nomads that might pitch a tent there every now and then. But the city itself is gone, but at one time it was a very great city, a city that was a capital city for the kingdom of Lydia. Um, It was an interesting city because when the original city was built, it was built on a rock ledge on the side of a mountain, and it was basically thought to be impregnable as far as outside forces. It was considered a fortress, and nobody could get into it, and um, in fact, it was so, they thought it was so impregnable that um, a lot of times the soldiers wouldn't even worry about uh, posting a watch because nobody could get into the city. And the reason why they thought nobody could get into the city was not only was it on a side of a mountain, but to get to this city, you'd have to scale cliffs. So how in the world are you going to get into that city? Well, Cyrus the Great when he was conquering the world, figured out a way to get into the city. In fact, the story is told that he laid siege to the city, and uh, after several days, uh, they couldn't get any headway, and he offered a reward to any of the soldiers who could figure out how to get into the city, and of course, nobody could figure anything out. But one day, one of the soldiers saw one of the soldiers on top of the city drop a helmet. And the helmet came from the top of the wall and came rolling down the side of the cliff, and landed on the ground, and just sat there. Well, the soldier watched and watched and watched, and guess what? The soldier that had dropped it suddenly appeared and picked up the helmet. So guess what he did? He followed that soldier and figured out that there was a crevice within the side of that wall that gained access up to the city. So he went and told Osiris, and guess what the army did? In the middle of the night, they went up there, and according to history, there wasn't even anybody even standing watch. They were so secure in the fact they knew that nobody could get to them uh, that they caught them totally off guard. And Cyrus, of course, uh, as he did, he conquered that part of the world too and killed the king that was known as Cronus, I believe his name was. Another thing that's interesting about the city of Sardis is it was a city that one time was extremely wealthy because it had a huge gold deposit. It had gold within the walls of the mountains there, and also had gold running through the riverbed. And so a a great amount of gold came from there. And the most significant thing that Sardis is remembered for is that Sardis was the very first place in history that coins started to be, sort of were minted and made into coins. They started making gold coins. In fact, um, I don't know how they come up with these figures, but Cyrus... um, took away $60 million worth of gold coins after he conquered the city of Sardis. So 
Um, Sardis was a town that at one time was extremely wealthy, uh, a town that was one time extremely fortified, but after Cyrus took it over, it began to go downhill, and then there was an earthquake that took place um, not too long after that, and have an earthquake and you have a fortress on top of a mountain, it didn't go very well. And so after that, they, they did rebuild the town, but they built it at the base of the mountain and not the top of the mountain. One reason, they did not need a fortress anymore because of the world they were living in at the time, and plus it was foolish to rebuild something that if another earthquake came along, it would tear it down again. But just some interesting things about that particular uh, town of Sardis. And as I said, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. All you, if you go visit, all you'll see is just uh, some ruins and not much of ruins when it comes to that. But any questions or comments about the city of Sardis? Anything you might want to ask about that? I might know, I might not know, but anything. All right. So it says unto the church, angel of the church in Sardis, write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And once again, as is the formula of this, uh, he, they, the, John takes what was said in the beginning in the first chapter as a description of Jesus Christ and has been splitting it up. And on this particular occasion, he mentions the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we had a discussion in chapter 1. What did we decide the seven spirits are? Verse 4. There it is. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Yeah, so you remember now, we talked about it was more than likely the Holy Spirit. And uh, we even talked about, I think, if I remember correctly, it was, was it Isaiah 11, 11 2? Yeah, where it names the different spirits and whatever. And so some people think that might be an Old Testament reference to that. Um, but the main thing is, here in this passage, he is identifying Jesus Christ in association with the seven spirits of God. And we think of the Holy Spirit, what do we think about? No wrong answer here. What? What? All right, the Holy Spirit's everywhere, okay. Comforter, okay. Um, in fact, Jesus even refers to the Holy Spirit sometimes as being the comforter, okay. Um, what about, when I think about the Holy Spirit, the thing I think about is I think about instruction. Um, where do we get what we know? In God's Word, or really what we know anything about God, where does that come from? It comes through God's Spirit. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration means God breathed or God's Spirit. Puma has been breathed into it, okay? So we've got, um, it's everywhere somebody mentioned. Uh, it's comforting. It's... Um, where we get our information from about God is God's word. Um, turn over to chapter 5 and verse 6 and see what the writer of, of Revelation says it is. Which he makes, this once again, this is not literal. This is using some symbolic language to help us understand about the spirit. But it says in verse 6 of chapter 5, And I behold... And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth all over the earth. So there it's making a connection with the seven spirits with seven eyes. Now, if you 
The spirit has seven eyes. These seven spirits have seven eyes. What, once again, this is just symbolic. It's not literal. But what conjures up in your mind? These symbols are supposed to conjure things up in your mind. All right? Yeah, don't miss anything. It doesn't miss anything. And I think about that. I think about how that the Holy Spirit doesn't miss anything. Uh, as far as what the Holy Spirit teaches, it doesn't miss anything. As far as it being a comforter, it doesn't miss anything. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that even when we're praying to God and we're not sure what to say, that the Holy Spirit helps us because it is that type of thing, okay? So the next question would be, why in the world would this be significant to this particular church? Just keep that in mind. We might come back to this, but keep that in mind. That something that having to do with the Holy Spirit is important to set this forth as he addresses this church. If you notice everything we've studied thus far, the introduction of Jesus and how he's described usually has something to do with the city. Okay? And then it goes on and says, and the seven stars. Now you remember the seven stars in chapter 1 were where? I even may mention in the right hand of, of Jesus, okay? And we may mention, this is a good example of how this is symbolic, because a person can't literally hold seven stars in his hand. It's got to be symbolic. But we also talked about how that, that seven stars represented the seven churches and how that they were in Christ's hand, meaning that they were in his care. So you've got the, the Holy Spirit, who is a comforter, who gives all information, who sees all things, who does all that. And then you've got Jesus Christ and his protection of the church, all right? And so keep that in mind, and as we're going to see maybe later on in the text, there may have been a specific reason why he picked that particular image of Jesus when addressing this church. But he goes on in verse 1 and says, I know thy works. I know thy works. Now, once again, this is something that we've seen in the other letters to the churches that he would begin by saying, I know thy works. And then he would proceed to say how that you are involved in all kinds of things and how that you, you don't give up and how you take care of persecution and how you, you won't let go the name of Jesus Christ, even though some in your church are being put to death. And then he'll go to the next one and says, I know thy works. You, you withstand tribulation. And he would say, I know thy works and talk about all these good things. Now, here's the thing I think is interesting about this. When churches received the book of Revelation, they received the book of Revelation all at once. It wasn't broken down into different churches. They got it, and they read chapter 1, and they began at chapter 2, and regardless of what church you lived in, you went through and you started with Ephesus. Okay, And you started, you were the next church. Next church, and you got to Thyatira. Next church. Okay, and all these letters began with a description of Jesus and then basically Jesus saying, I know thy works. And I was thinking about that and I just thought about, here's the church at Sardis. And he's heard him talk about these other churches. And they all began with, I know thy works. And here they are getting to their church and he's going to talk about our church now. I know thy works. And they're getting all excited. I wonder what they're going to say about us. And look what he says about them. <laughs> I know thy works, that thou hast a name that liveth and are dead. 
He just said, you're a dead church. Probably not what they were expecting. So he says, first of all, I know thy works, that thou has a name that livest. What does that mean? Okay. All right. And that's a probably a better translation here because there's a contrast being made here. This is a church that had a reputation. And evidently it was a good reputation. As far as the outside world was concerned, this was probably one of the better known churches of Christ. Um, it probably had a very nice building. It probably had um, some well-known preachers that preached there, though we don't have any record of that. Maybe some church leaders that were well-known. Uh, it may be that um, the worship service and, and the things that they were involved in, uh, they had a reputation in the Christian world, if you will, as being a living, vibrant church. They probably had all kinds of programs and whatnot. I mean, they, when they had a youth rally, they had a youth rally. They probably even had horseback riding or something, you know, or archery, I don't know. But it, they just had it, you know, from the outside world, looking at the church from the outside there in Sardis, people thought, man, that's a church to be a member of. Um, King James says they, they had a name. And the implication is it was a good name. It's a name that associated with Sardis was a good thing. But Jesus goes on and says, on the outside, everybody thinks that you're alive. But the church itself is dead. It's dead. Now, here's the question. How can a church, from the outside appearance, look to be like the church everybody wants to be a member of, but inside it's dead? How would you describe, how do you describe that? Contention, maybe some infighting. Oh, intention? All right, is there intention? Okay, the reason behind they do what they do? Yes, Steve? All right, I like that. They may have had the truth part down, but their heart wasn't in it. Yes? Okay. Uh, maybe he's just simply going through the motions. Um you know, we could have a spectacular worship service here, have the best song leader, the best preacher, have the best prayers, have the best Lord's Supper people in charge, just have everything perfect, but it could be absolutely not pleasing to God. Because if your heart's not there, it's, it's vain worship. You're going to say something? <clears throat> so you're saying they compromise things to bring the crowds in and pick the people, please. And I notice, if you've ever been associated with a real big congregation as I have, that a lot of times it comes down to make sure we keep the money coming in to pay for everything that we're doing, because if we start losing this money, then we're in big trouble. And so maybe some things are not dealt with the way that they should be dealt with. But here's something I want you to think about, too, about this church and what we've just read. Look at the text, and then think about all the other churches we've looked at, and tell me what's very noticeably absent. What is not said at, about this that was said about the other churches? What's missing? There's something missing. In fact, there's a couple things that are missing. Yes, Michael. All right. All right, yeah, there's nothing good said about him. Usually he starts with some kind of, uh, as I said, a commendation. There's no con. con uh, 
this condemnation here. And that's true, but there's something else missing. Think about some of the things that Jesus said about the other churches, and nothing is being said about this at all. Okay? Nothing said about that either way, is it? Okay? Sounds pretty dead to me, doesn't it? All right? There you go. No mention whatsoever about persecution. But all the other churches, oh, you're going to be thrown into prison soon. Oh, some of you have already died. Some of you are going to die. There's evidently no persecution whatsoever in this church. If there is, Jesus doesn't say anything about it. Hmm, that makes you think a little bit, doesn't it? What, Jeremy? There you go. You don't hear anything about, about Caesar and these emperor worships and how that they better bow down to Caesar or they're going to be put to death. You don't hear anything in here about the Jews being against them. And the implication is, Jeremy says, they found a way to get along with everybody so they could keep the status quo. Oh, look at us. We're the big church with everything. We're alive. Look at us. We're alive. No, you're dead. The outside of the coffin may be pretty, but what's inside is dead. There's something else missing that Jesus talks about with the other churches. In fact, it's a theme. Not only is persecution a theme, what else is a theme? What were some of the things that the other churches were dealing with? They were dealing with persecution, but there's also a factor they were dealing with. In fact, in two of the churches, they called the things by name. Let me help you a little bit. Anybody ever hear of the Nicolaitans? Remember we talked about the Nicolaitans? Anybody talk about a woman? Yeah. Anybody talk about the teachings of Balaam? What, are, what were all those things? They were negative things because they were false teachers. There you go. Well, you look here at the church at Sardis. There's no mention, hey, you better watch out. You got some false teachers in your church. Hey, you better watch out. You need to take a stand against false teaching. That's absent, totally absent. All Jesus says is you're dead. Now, once again, put our little thinking caps on just a little bit. What would that might lead you to believe if there were no problems with false teachers in their church? They weren't teaching anything. See, if truth is being taught, and it's taught in the right kind of way, it's going to get men to think. And when men think, sometimes they think the wrong kind of way. Um, most false teaching is usually a swing in the unbalancedness of what is truth. Uh, it's called the pendulum effect. For example, think of the divinity of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches, the divinity of Jesus Christ. But there were false teachers, both then and now, who take the pendulum too far the other way, and they make Jesus into something that could not be human, as did the Gnostics. They said Jesus was either perfectly God or he was perfectly man. He couldn't be both. The divinity was there, so he really wasn't here. We just saw an image of him. It was just an illusion because there's no way in the world Jesus could be both God and flesh because he was so divine. But then you got the other extreme of Jesus and his divinity where you start swinging at the other pendulum the other way and you make him such a man that he loses his divineness and all of a sudden, well, he was just a good man. And he, he was a, a heroic figure, and he taught good things, and you, he's just another prophet like any other prophet, such as the Muslims believe. 
You see, when you teach the truth, usually there's always going to be some kind of false teaching you're going to have to come back because that pendulum's always swinging. For example, you have the law, but if you take it too far away, too far one direction, what do you have? You have legalism. But if you take the law and you take it to the other way, you have what's called antinobianism, which means lack of law. The law doesn't matter. And so the idea perhaps here is that really nothing was being taught, that the sermons, in order to keep everybody happy and to keep making sure everybody didn't get upset and the money would keep coming in and the crowds would keep being big, let's just have some sermons on love, maybe on some social issues, how to stop worrying, um, how, to, you know, how to get along with your neighbor and that kind of thing. But as far as doctrinal sermons, on baptism maybe, or on hell, or on uh, the way the Bible wants you to do certain things, maybe that was absent. And what was the result? Well, Jesus is saying, you may look alive on the outside, but inside your church, you're dead. You're dead. They were a dead church. And it's just such an unusual contrast that's painted here in the Greek. There's the idea of, of this picture that everybody else sees from the outside world. But man, this is a vibrant living church because of what they could see from the exterior. But on the interior, it was a dead church. And so they didn't have to worry about persecution. They didn't have to worry about, about uh, false teachers. Um, they didn't have to worry about anybody being put in prison or, or being put to death because they weren't doing anything to, to disrupt anything. They weren't going to make any waves. They just existed. They had a sign outside that said Church of Christ, and they had a nice building, and they had great worship services. But other than that, they really didn't have anything because they really weren't doing what they were supposed to do as a church. Well, it goes on. In verse 2, and says this. He says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Now, the King James has a little problem here with the translating. It says, Be watchful. But I'm sure if somebody has an NIV, will say what? Wake up. You're dead asleep, but wake up. Wake up and grab a hold of those things which remain. If there's anything left in this church, any spark left, if there's anything that can pull you out of this, pull yourself out of this, wake up, you're dying and you don't realize it. Now think about how hard that would be. When you drove up on a Sunday morning, and I'm of course assimilating it to our present day, and you and you walk in a fine building and it's the best of everything and and the worship service, boy, you leave. You say, man, I'm fired up. That was a good worship service. Boy, that preacher, he just really entertained me. And the song leader, boy, he, he, he got my heart just to jumping. And you leave there, and you feel pretty good about yourself. But the whole time, Jesus is saying, you know, you're dead. You're dead. You're dead. And you don't realize it. Wake up. You're living a dream. Wake up. And I hope that there's enough left that you can build on where you can pull this out because you're about to die. In fact, he goes on, he says, For I have not found thy works. The King James Version has the word perfect, but the actual translation, and y'all may have this, complete. If you have complete, he's, he's basically saying, You never finish what you started. 
you haven't completed what you were supposed to do. Now, what was it they perhaps didn't complete? If they got all these things going on, that they have a reputation in the, in the country as being this nice church, what was it they didn't complete, you think? All right. Um, they kind of majored on the externals and didn't deal with the internals. And that is being a right relationship with God, taking a stand for the truth, even if it meant persecution, even if it meant losing money, even if it meant all these things that all these other churches were dealing with. Oh, this church was thriving. It had no problems whatsoever. Well, the reason being is because you weren't doing what God told you to do. In fact, um, it's interesting. The King James just has, uh, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Some translations correctly have what? Instead of that, the last, last five words, what does it say? My God. It has my God, which is in the original. King James left it out. Here's what's interesting about that. This is very anecdotal information, but something that I think you might find interesting. Only other place in the entire Bible do you ever find the phrase, my God, is in the book of John. So what would that lead you to believe if you see it here in the book of Revelation? Same author, okay. Yeah, we've got some good evidence here that John wrote this book. Whoever wrote the gospel, John wrote this book because he is the only one in the entire Bible who uses this phrase, my God. Anyway, that's just some of the things that I pick up on sometimes I think is interesting. Um, That won't be on the test though, Scott, so don't worry. Okay. All right, so... There's some things that they've left undone, some things they should be doing that they're not doing. Um, And he says, if you don't start doing them soon, if you don't start picking up on those things that are left, if there's anything left within you, you need to pick up on it because if you're not, you're going to die. The church is going to be completely dead. It's going to disappear. So he tells them in verse 3, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. Remember. Or something they're supposed to remember. What are they supposed to remember? How thou hast received and heard and hold fast. What is that talking about, you reckon? They're supposed to remember how they has, how you have received and heard. What? God's blessings is certainly a part of that. Received and heard. Ah, there you go. Very good, Michael. Most people think that's what it's talking about here. That's talking about the gospel. So if he's wanting them to go back to when they were, what? Saved. When they were first baptized. Um, And so maybe there's the illusion here that I want you to go back and remember when you were really alive. And I think all of us would agree that we probably felt our best and probably felt the least sinless and probably was the most excited when we first got out of that baptistry, right? And then as time goes on and some of the uh, thrill of it leaves, some of the gratitude of it leaves, and Satan starts to dig in there because he always does once you become a Christian, you kind of lose some of that excitement and some of that energy. And before long, if you're not careful, you're just simply going through the routines. Come to church. 
on Sunday because I'm supposed to come to church on Sunday. I'm supposed to be in worship service because I'm supposed to be in worship service. I'm supposed to sing these songs because I'm supposed to sing these songs. I'm supposed to pray these prayers because I'm supposed to pray these prayers. Oh, I got to sit through that preacher's preaching because I'm supposed to hear him preach. And I got to give him some money because I'm supposed to give some money. It'd be very easy if that's the attitude we start getting into where it just becomes routine and mundane and there's no heart behind it that we too could be the walking dead. We could be, as far as other church members are concerned, we could be like the most fabulous member here. I mean, we could be here every Sunday. Uh, we look nice. We participate fully in the worship service. We're willing to do stuff that needs to be done because it needs to be done. But really inside... Or just the walking dead. Because what's happening really doesn't mean anything to us. The songs we sing really aren't songs of gratitude and thanksgiving and praise. What we give is really not uh, evidence of our love and sacrifice. Uh, the hearing, listening to the preaching is not a, thirst for, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's just something that we do. And so we can be very, if we're not careful, we could be in the same situation. Because here we had a church that far for, as far as the exterior was concerned, boy, man, they got it. They got it down. But inside, spiritually, they were dead. And so he's saying, go back and remember to when you first became a Christian. And if you do that, somebody, somebody just read the NIV. I was like the NIV a whole lot better here in verse 3 than the King James has. Somebody read it loud for us. It's got it. Verse 3. All right. Once again, he has the idea that you've got to wake up. If you don't wake up, there's going to be a day of judgment. And here it's described, he's going to come on thee as a thief. Now, one thing I left out about the city of Sardis was because of the fact it was a city that was full of gold, and they had many coins there. If you would leave the city, guess what would happen to you oftentimes? You get robbed. And so maybe this is an allusion to that. And anytime the thief robs you, and this has always been a good illustration of the coming judgment of, of Jesus Christ, whenever a thief robs you, he usually comes at a time when you don't expect. If we knew a thief was coming at a certain time, what would we do? I know we do at my house. <laughs> That's right. But thieves come when you don't expect them. They, they come at, I didn't expect to be robbed today. Because if you expected to be robbed today, you would have been home at that time or you would have done something else different. And so it's always been a good parallel for Christ's second coming uh, because of the fact that um, it's a time when you least expect it. Now here is not talking about Christ's second coming, we don't believe. It's talking about judgment on the church because if it was talking about a second coming, then his whole second coming would be based on whether or not they remembered and repented. So we can't put all the conditions of the second coming of Jesus Christ on one church. So this is just talking about, as it oftentimes is in the case of the book of Revelation, talking about him coming in, in judgment on that particular church. It's not the manifestation of him with the clouds and the angels and the flaming fire taking vengeance on them who know not God or believe not the gospel. This is talking about some type of judgment on this particular church, mainly that they would cease to exist. And so the admonition here to this church is, Listen, on the outside, people think you're the most alive church we've ever seen, but on the inside, you're dead. And if you don't wake up from this stupor that you're in, if you don't wake up from this dream that you think you're living, 
then you're going to be really dead. You need to wake up. You need to remember what it was like when you first became a Christian, and you need to grab a hold of whatever you can grab a hold of, whatever spark is left, and let's get the inside on fire again. Let's get doing what we're supposed to be doing. Start preaching the truth. Start making a stand. Start doing what needs to be done. Quit just simply going through the motions. All right, any questions or comments on that before we move to the next part of this? Yes. I think the overall thing I get out of this is that in order for Christianity to be real, you've got to have your heart in it. You've got to have your heart in it. Um, one of the problems we have with some denominations, and especially some of the rituals and forms they go through, is because it's heartless. It's just a form and ritual. And we need to be very careful that we don't let what we do here in our congregation just simply become a ritual, uh, just something we do for the sake of doing it. You know, three songs and a prayer and a sermon and the Lord's Supper, and we've done what we need to do. Uh, those songs, when we sing them, that's why we do what we do sometimes on Sunday nights for the singing is, it's got to come from the heart. You've got to mean what you're saying, and it's got to invoke uh, gratitude and praise and that kind of thing and, and all the other things that go along with it. So oftentimes we just put in time without taking the time to really think about what we need to be thinking about. Where did the time go? I saw Karen just look at her watch, and I thought, what happened? Well, I figured we'd get through with Sardis tonight, but I was dead wrong. Hint, hint. <laughs> All right, we'll stop there. Thank you for your comments.